Well, welcome back, all you captivating catbirds, to another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, sustainability, all things wildlife, nature-related we love to talk about. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am here, as always, with Casey, my co-host. Oh, hello, everyone. Hello, Casey. Real quick, for those of you who maybe are joining us for the first time or haven't heard our intro episode, which you can always go back and check out if you want to learn more about us, Casey and I are both just passionate about nature. We are both former, technically, conservation educators, officially, uh, but still conservation educators at heart uh, through this podcast. Um, so uh, we, we used to work together and we just decided to take on this little passion project and we love coming and talking to you about a different topic every week. So thanks for joining us again. Casey, how are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty well. I'm sitting in our breezeway right now where it, there is no heat, so it's very cold. <laughs> I'm so happy rethink my podcasting location yeah. for next week as it gets a little bit further in November. Get yourself a space heater. Yes. Got to get myself a space heater. Got to, got to figure out the professional setup still living <laughs> with my dad. So eventually I'll have my own little space, hopefully to, to be able to do this every week. But for now I'm just cobbling together, whatever the quietest closest to the uh, router area yeah. is. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? How's your week going? My week is going well. If you're new to the podcast, I just recently moved from the Midwest back down to Florida, and I'm a little bit bitter today because it's been very Midwest fall weather <laughs> the past few days. It's been cold and rainy, so that's been sad, but um, but otherwise... Otherwise, I'm good. Yeah, excited to be back uh, again after we had a brief interruption a couple weeks ago while I was moving. So glad to be getting back in the routine of doing a little greener. Yeah, and and again, if you're new, one of the things we do every week is we give our audience and each other a challenge to do related to the topic of the week. So uh, last week we had our introduction to migratory birds, and this week we're going to follow it up with some conservation stuff related to migratory birds. But our homework assignment was basically to go outside, spend some time in nature, and listen for some of those birds that are still in our area this time of year, and the beast mode challenge was to make sure that you, uh, listened close enough that you might be able to identify some of those birds. So Sarah, how did you do on your challenge for the week? I did all right. I, I will say, uh, since I've moved back down here, I've been getting my nature time in for sure every day because I have to go out and walk the dog still sort of urban nature, but there's a lot of green-ish space around. It's mostly lawn, sort of manicured, but I have been getting outside multiple times every day. So I've just been making a point when I'm out walking the dog to watch and listen. I will say though, I really didn't hear that many bird calls as I was out and about. I The only ones that I recall hearing, and I I'm fairly confident that I could identify them was good old faithful Cardinal going to have them everywhere, but I was hearing Cardinals crows pretty yeah. easy to identify. <laughs> <laughs> and then the cat bird, which is why I kicked off the episode that way. But I did hear a cat bird calling a couple of times. I did also see some ducks. I, I could not actually identify exactly what type of ducks they were. And sandhill cranes, which are a fun oh, bird that I get to yeah. see around there. I mean, very common around where I'm living right now, but fun for me to start to see again. So I visually identified those birds, heard a few others. I saw a little, a small yellowish bird just on our walk this afternoon that I didn't get a good enough look at to identify. And I'm really bummed about that because it was a pretty little bird, but I did not get hear it calling and I couldn't identify it. So, how so my follow, I was oh, yeah, going to say my follow-up questions for you now are one, is it easier to go outside now that it's not quite as cold? Like, 100%. are you feeling, yeah, you yeah. are motivated by Absolutely. that weather factor? Yeah. But weather yeah. factor is helpful for me. My schedule is also helpful for me. I get 
three days off in a row now. And so that's really nice. It just makes me more motivated to go out and do things in general. But yeah, 100%, if I were back up north, this is the time of year where I would find it really hard to go outside just because I I don't like being cold. It's not fun. And my second follow-up question was basically that you wake up really early in the morning mm-hmm. right now for your job. Do you th- think that's impacting your bird watching ability or because yeah, you have well, off, yeah. you're waking up for it? I mean, so yeah, I'm getting up well before you would be hearing birds call um, earlier in the day, like hours before you would start hearing the birds waking up for sure. So I guess in that sense it is, but you know, even before I was doing that, uh, you know, when I got up in the morning, I still feel like I was not super successful in morning bird watching. I did most of my bird watching in the afternoons and the evenings before. So, which is probably not what the professionals would tell you to do, but that's, you know, I still felt like I was able to see and hear enough. So I think that I would probably do better if I was up at dawn, but I think that I, it's, I have enough success in those afternoon hours. Good. I uh, have taken some time out there. We have a great blue heron that lives in our yard. Fun. So I was able to see that, but I don't know how much noise this they make. You know, they're, yeah. he's just pretty quiet, sees my dog, is annoyed about it and leaves. And then lots of Canada geese going overhead, good old reliable cardinal going on. But I was struck the other day, just kind of walking through the woods nearby that it was really quiet. It was Mm -hmm. a lot quieter than it tends to be in the midsummer when I moved here um, or in that springtime season. So definitely the landscape is changing. If you're someone who's stuck at home, who's unable to go out like this time of year, both my mom and my sister have uh, circulation conditions where they're not able to get a good enough blood flow to their fingers and toes. So it's kind of more dangerous for them to be outside when it's really cold. That's one of the things we talked about in episode three of this podcast is that bird watching can actually be really accessible for people, even if you're uh, disabled or have other constrictions as far as where you live or your ability to travel. So this would be a good time of year to set up a bird feeder if you want to do a little more active bird watching. Yeah, it's something that you can do from inside your house. Uh, my mom and I were talking, you know, she because it is harder for her to be out in the cold. And my sister is in a wheelchair when they go for walks. And so that can be hard to wrangle, especially in the cold weather too. So, you know, she's kind of just doing nature drives now. So at least they're, you know, they're getting the sunshine and getting to be out in nature areas and, um, and she can see what she can see that way. So yeah, find, find something that works for you. Yeah. Even if it's like baby steps in the right direction, if you're someone who's affected by the sun setting earlier, we just hit daylight savings. Boo. Um, so we're getting less of it. Uh, whatever can get you out of the house and getting you a little dose of that nature is good. So Sarah, I was really researching right up to the wire. So normally I ask you a question here related to our subject (laughs) of the day, but turns out I didn't think of one. So are you ready to uh, go right in after the break to talk about migratory birds? Yes, I can't (laughs) wait. I'm very excited to continue our our chat from last week about migratory birds. So if you haven't, maybe go back and listen to that episode first. Do that. Yes, please. And then come back (laughs) here and stick around. We'll get started with our discussion in just a minute. All right. And we're back with the main body of our episode. We are talking once again about migratory birds. And today we're mostly going to be covering things related to threats and challenges that these species face and some things that we can do to help them and things that are going on right now that are helping them. Um, But when I was doing more research this week, one of the things I realized is that there are way more things about migratory birds that we just didn't get into the last time. So I wanted to start us off with some fun facts, Sarah. Um, One of the things that we didn't talk about is what triggers a bird to migrate? Are you familiar with some of the things that birds might be looking for? That's going to like triggered in their brain to be like, Oh, it's time to go. I got to go South or North, whatever time of year it is. Not 
super familiar. I mean, we talked last week about how it is often resources that is what they're looking for. So I would guess that perhaps that can be a trigger as well. Yeah. The, uh, the depletion of resources, light, like circadian rhythms and things like that. So changes in daylight, as we just talked about daylight savings time, could be a potential trigger for them as well, I would guess. Yeah. Both of those things are important. We talked a little bit about how like robins, for example, are kind of considered nomadic. They're going to start seeing their resources change and start to go south. But we also are kind of seeing that other bird species are also impacted by that lack of resources are going to trigger them to migrate. Also lower temperatures, also genetic predisposition might play a role into it. So that's interesting. Yeah. And, and something that I definitely am seeing as I go through this is anytime we're talking about any of those things, we can't apply them to all birds. So birds have different signals to tell them when to migrate. And we really don't know a whole lot about it. And just like we talked about last week, we don't really know how they know where to go. It's probably slightly different for different species of birds. And we'll talk a little bit about how that impacts their, their ability to survive their migration, um, to prepare for migration. One of the things I was going to ask you, I was like thinking about that question is you run marathons occasionally. Mm -hmm. And I was going to be like, Sarah, how do you prepare for a marathon? Um, but then I remembered that you don't, I don't (laughs) Sarah, it would be the bird. Who's like, Oh, it's getting colder. Oof. well, I guess we're just going to (laughs) try but she's got the determination that she'd make it. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, I was just going to say, so I see what, what point you're about to make here, which I have two. So some birds apparently will double their body weight uh, in preparation for migration, which first of all, mind blowing to me. And why did I never think about that before? I mean, we think about other animals, you know, squirrels storing their cash for the winter bears, fat bear week that the national park service does. So we think about these other animals. I never once even thought about the fact that birds would have to like build up their resources for migration. So Wow. Uh, first of all, like, I mean, I guess that's obvious, but it's just a thing that I never thought about. Secondly, I do eat before. <laughs> that is, I won't train, but I will absolutely You'll eat. eat. There you go. You got to have those nutrients, right? These birds are, are making longer than a 26 mile journey, mm-hmm. right? They're making a much bigger journey. So within a couple of weeks headed up to migration, they tend to double in body weight. They'll actually reduce some of the size of their organs in order <laughs> in order to do that. I know I didn't want to spend too much time on all of this, but, um, but yeah, think about it is like, I think the way that Audubon or American birds, uh, conservancy put it, it's basically, they're like offloading unneeded cargo. So the gizzard, for example, might shrink in size to accommodate more fat storage. And they also talked about, you just said bears, bears normally like carbo load. Mm-hmm. They're like, mm, yep. Give me all them carbs. Um, but birds typically feed on fats. So more of those seeds and berries, uh, to try and bulk themselves up. So like Ruby throated hummingbirds, for example, are going to double in weight, um, before they make their migration. So that's bonkers. But the other thing that really stood out to me, according to this article I was reading is Swainson thrushes when they are flying down to central and South America or flying up there to Canada and Alaska, they kind of sleep like whales do where they turn off half their Mm -hmm. brains. So they're still able to fly. Um, but they, (laughs) it's basically a nine second interval of half sleep in the sky, (laughs) um, while the other half rests and this is able to get them there, which is bonkers, mind blowing. What are birds? How do they exist? Crazy. So that's like my worst nightmare of a bird. I would not want to do that. You don't, you need flying to sleep. half asleep. No, well, and also flying half asleep. What? Yeah. That, like maybe it. that'll, uh, that's never mentioned in any of the articles coming on, but we have some things to talk about the dangers when you're flying. So perhaps this has <laughs> some little thing, but it's only nine seconds at a time, Who knows? Oh, which also um, is terrible. Yeah. So I just want to start us off there. Cause I, I felt like those are some little holes in the last episode, but also let's get excited and inspired by the incredibleness of birds before we talk about some stuff. That's going to be a little bit sad, but we're also going to talk about some things that we can improve. Um, so we talked about it, basically 35% of the birds who stay here over winter are likely to die over winter. 
and the ones that migrate, it's only like 25%, but that doesn't mean that migratory birds don't face lots of challenges. So what are some dangers that migratory birds face while migrating, Sarah? So we ran through this a little bit last week as well. So not to repeat myself too, too much, but basically anything that is a threat to a, a backyard bird is also still going to be a threat to those migratory birds. So thinking about the habitat that they live in and not only their their origin and their destination, but having habitat, having enough resources along the way, they're also going to have a lot of hazards during their flight. So you have collision issues to think about. We have light pollution, which we've talked about on this podcast before, can be an issue for uh, migratory birds, as well as natural threats like uh, weather events, severe weather events, natural predators, and unnatural predators like our domestic cats. Hey, let's just get this out of the way right now. Sarah, what should people do with their cats to help protect birds? Keep your cats inside. It's you can very do it. Simple. Yep. Yes. Again, go back to episode three, but we like to blame this all on the feral cat population, but there are lots of cats that are owned by people that are just allowed to roam free that eat birds, lots and lots of birds, probably more birds than any other threat to birds. So, and it's, I, I think Casey, you talked about in that previous episode on backyard birding that the estimates are hard. It's hard to know exactly how many birds so are hard. killed, but potentially billions of birds. Billions of birds. There's a pretty famous 2019 study that came out and it talked about threats that cats specifically face. They try and quantify those numbers. Um, one of the things I discovered over the course of this podcast research is that um, numbers are hard. There's a lot, a mm-hmm. lot of birds. And so anytime that you're trying to make estimates, those estimates may range in the like five, uh, 500 million bird sort of margin of error going on there. So it's really hard to figure it out. Um, but we do know that we've lost, uh, something like 30% of our birds since the 1970s in the U S and 80% of that loss is actually in migratory birds. So Mm -hmm. It is impacting these species more than our resident birds. Um, So let's talk about some of the issues. Sarah, um, this is the number one problem for birds, but it's also the number one threat to species worldwide, regardless of like taxa. What is the number one threat to animals worldwide? It's going to be habitat loss. Right. I mean, you you hear that basically any species that you talk about, that is one of the threats that they're facing. If not, like, as you just said, the top threat for so many species. Yeah. And habitat loss is not just like the number of acres we lose. It also has to do with, um, because remember that land doesn't go away. Typically there's, I mean, other than sea level rise, most of that land's pretty intact. It's that we're using it for different purposes. Um, and changing the resources available to species. And we're also breaking that intact habitat apart. So it's not just loss, but it's also fragmentation. And they've found that areas that are fragmented, if you're not into ecology, this is called a population sink, but basically it is what it sounds like. Birds go there, but they're not adding to the population. It's more likely to be an area where uh, the population is going down compared to other areas, which might be a source for the population. So these intact habitats are helping supply the other areas with birds, but the fragmented areas can't sustain their own breeding populations. So it's a huge issue for migratory birds. And we mentioned that they have a higher chance of surviving when they migrate. Um, but one of the things that we're probably going to start seeing soon is the impacts of things like deforestation and urbanization in Central and South America as well. So we've done a lot of habitat destruction up here already. And those winter paradises for the birds are more intact. So that's probably why they have higher survival rates down there in part. But as more and more of the forests go down there, that's going to be more and more of a challenge for them. But I do want to point out, I found a really interesting statistic from um, American Bird Conservancy. In the U.S., from 2007 to 2018, we lost 4.8 million acres to agriculture alone. I, I guess I didn't really think of us expanding our agricultural footprint, Sarah. Is that something you think about? 
expanding that area. I mean, not in daily life, but you know, <laughs> that, that challenge an assumption for me yeah. regularly. Really? I mean, I'm not surprised. I don't think I sort of just assume that everything is expanding all the time. Everything yeah. we do, our population just keeps growing. Our cities keep growing. Our agricultural areas are going to keep growing. So I'm, I'm not surprised by it. Yeah. And it's not just that we um, turn 4.8 million acres of habitat into agriculture. A lot of our small operation farm farming operations have turned to larger corporations that farm one singular crop. So one of the things that this does, it not only destroys habitat, but a lot of these agriculture areas are applying things like pesticides to their crops and birds eat bugs. And mm-hmm. so they can be a really great resource for us to be able to have them be natural insect control. But when we apply pesticides, we don't just take away their food resource, but we can also impact their populations through the transfer of those toxins up the food chain as well. The other thing is, is that, um, we, I guess I kind of always thought about like, all right, once the bird's up in the sky, it's kind of doing its thing. <laughs> And not that I've thought critically about this for a while, but you know, when you're a kid, when migratory bird, whoop, yeah. they're gone. Yep. They're up there. Um, but they do land. Uh, they actually spend more time on the ground during migration than they do up in the sky. And that's because they need to refuel. They need to be able to find spaces where they can eat more food to power their migration South. Um, so the Audubon society and Cornell lab of ornithology are both studying stopover sites. And they found that Half of these sites are in human dominated landscapes and fewer than 10% of those stopover sites are protected. So if you're imagining them landing down in a national park, there's not a really high likelihood that that's actually happening. And that's a good stat to know, I feel like, because that is, it's just a good reminder that we can have a huge impact on these migratory birds, meaning we can help them, right? Right. Like if we know that this is true, then we can make sure that we're doing our part to help them have good stopover spaces. Yeah. This helps us really target our conservation priorities. Like we don't have to save all the land in the U S to help birds. There are specific pockets that we can definitely help protect that are going to be more important for those migratory birds. But yeah, a lot of those birds over half of them are coming to areas where we live. Mm -hmm. So they face some threats because of this. One of them is light pollution. Sarah, what threat does light pose to birds? So I actually, I think it can be a few things. And I've always thought of light pollution as being sort of disorienting. So we talked last week about how certain species will migrate during the day, but other species will migrate during the nighttime and likely use stars as a navigational tool. And so light pollution can throw that off. I also have read some articles talking about how it can just be a confusing factor as well. Like light's going to reflect off of buildings and windows and things like that, that can potentially probably uh, either, either confuse them and draw them away from their pathway or increase the likelihood of collisions as well. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of both light pollution is estimated to be increasing at 2% per year. Most of us who live in urban areas in the U S cannot see the Milky way anymore. Mm -hmm. I will say Andrew and I were standing outside shortly after we moved to where we move now. And when we used to live in a city, you really couldn't see just about any stars. And now we're in the suburbs and he's like, wow, there are so many more here, but we could literally see like which way town was just by the light pollution in the sky. Mm -hmm. Um, So you could see like the neighborhoods behind us were more rural. And then the main part of downtown was illuminated and birds are seeing that same thing. Um, so yeah, they, they have found that more birds than you would statistically expect are ending up in major city hubs. And it's probably because they're drawn in by the light. One really interesting researcher did a study on the tribute and light memorial for the twin towers in New York city. So if you've never seen them, they are like these two huge beams of light that shoot up into the sky where the twin towers were before nine 11 And they did a study and found that over a million birds were drawn in by those lights in a one week period. But those birds would also then circle those lights for hours, just like circle that area. They were so confused 
and they were wasting precious resources. That body weight they put on, they only have so much of it. So if they're not landing and resting and refueling, and they're also not making any headway in their migration, that can be a huge issue Mm -hmm. for those birds. So really interestingly, that research then informed the decision to dim the lights uh, during migration periods and to even turn them off for 20 to 30 increments to let the birds like reorient themselves and continue on their way so that they weren't wasting time there. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, but light pollution, like guiding birds into cities are going to face more threats now that they're in the city. So what are some things they have to worry about if they're now in the city instead of in a more natural landscape? Well, resources for sure, finding resources, Mm -hmm. but also collisions like we just talked about, that's going to be another huge threat for birds along the way. And we've probably all unfortunately seen this at some point. Yeah. We have really only one big window in this house I live in and it's right at our kitchen. And I have heard multiple birds Mm -hmm. thunk off of it. And it's because birds can't perceive glass the same way that we do. There's nothing in nature that is anywhere similar to glass. Yeah. I I think that's a really good point because we do maybe have the tendency to see this happen and be like, gosh, why can't they figure it out? You know, but we made glass, like we made these structures, these, there's no reason for birds to know this. I mean, I even think about like my dog, when I adopted my dog, that was one of the things they told me I had a sliding glass door and a sliding screen door. And they're like, you need to put tape on that or barricade it off until he figures it out. Cause he's never seen, he had no idea. And why should he like, why <laughs> would he perceive this clear see-through thing. And I mean, and it happened too. like, he ran straight into the screen at at one point. So it's, it is a man-made thing. There's no reason they should understand it. So I think that's a fair point to make. Yeah. I originally had the question is Sarah, why do they fly into glass? Are they dumb? Like as like a (laughs) sarcastic way of entering that, but yeah, there's like nothing out there like that. And birds can learn glass, like birds that live Mm -hmm. in zoos. When you first let them into that enclosure and it has glass, you'll put soap or tape or different things to make the glass visible to them. And then over time they learn that that's a boundary. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just agreeing, agreeing with your statement there. And I, I do think that like we talked about with the light, like it's, so it's not just that they don't initially understand it, but I think it can also be confusing as well. So even if they're, they're registering it, they're seeing like reflections Mm-hmm. Uh, from other things that cause them to perceive it as a clear way to go. And I even read some articles saying that it, just the positioning of their eyes can make it challenging for them to, it's like they might not even always be seeing the glass. They might be seeing oh, things yeah. on either side too. So lots of different yeah. factors that could potentially yes. cause these collisions. We also light up the insides of the buildings that are made out of glass. So mm-hmm. like- that's another thing that's going to draw them there. Um, it doesn't impact species equally across the board. So I uh, want to shout out the Field Museum in Chicago because they have an incredible resource of um, they've been collecting birds that have flown into buildings for 40 years. So they have over 70,000 birds and they found like with the birds going through, they, they measure them. They look, record where they flew into what time of year that they're there. Um, they found that warblers, thrushes, sparrows, and other species that call during nocturnal migration suffered far more fatalities than did species such as quiet vireos, gnat catchers, and fly catchers. And that is from an article at audubon.org. So birds, when we're talking about them figuring out where they go, they are relying, uh, for some species on the calls of other members of their species. And so if one bird hits, like sees the glass, they might be saying something like, Hey, it's over here. And then everybody crashes into it. So it, it ends up, um, ends up being a bigger detriment to certain species than others. That's really interesting. And I'd not thought about that before. Yeah. One of the things that they found, so there's a um, convention center that's made out of glass. It's called McCormick's place and it's right on Lake Michigan. And it's kind of a death trap for birds. Um, historically it's been all lit up. And so half of those 70,000 birds 
are from that building. Wow. So yes, just at that one building, they catch that many dead birds that they then record all their data from. Um, and so that's something that they found. Um, and they've been able to also track lots of different cool factors over the last 40 years. So shout out to that team at the field museum, but their data is helping us inform some decisions about buildings for the future. Uh, but overall in the U S and again, this is one of those dumb statistics in that it is so wide ranging. It's almost hard to make heads or tails, but between 365 and 988 million birds die in collisions with buildings. Obviously skyscrapers being bigger kill more birds per building than any other buildings, but most of that mortality is in more residential areas because there's more of it. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just those skyscrapers. So once again, yeah, we, we can help. We can have, so I, the reason I keep bringing this up is I think sometimes when people hear conservation tips or sustainability tips, it can feel like, okay, like you're, you're saying that's going to help, but really that's, it's just, you're just trying to make us feel good or whatever this, we really can make a difference. Like if you, you you know, bird proof your windows, it can make a a huge help. Yeah. It's, uh, Birds are one of those great examples that they're all around us so and lots of different species. So get your favorite and then figure out what you can do for them. Um, we just talked about cats, but you're going to see more cats in those urban areas. Keep them inside, please, please, please. But the, kind of a, another challenge that they're going to face that we haven't talked about yet is climate change. So bird migration has been fine-tuned with the cycles of the environment over many hundreds and thousands of years. We talked about in the last episode that bird migration is a flexible trait, which means that birds can change how they migrate. And you mentioned that like birds themselves individually might imprint on certain locations they go to. So they're not all doing the same route that's genetically programmed into their head. Even if that has an influence on them, they do have some more I don't want to call it individual choice. Cause it's not like, would you like to go south or would you like to stay here? It's like, what are, what is my environment cueing me as the mm-hmm. best situation for me? So Sarah, how would you anticipate climate change impacting bird migration? Who knows, man? We'll see. <laughs> I just feel like there's so many different factors that influence migration. And there are so many possible ramifications of climate change that it's hard to know. But as those triggers change, you know, I wonder if we will see less birds migrating if their resources, if, if they're, if the climate is changing in a way that keeps resources available to them, which is maybe a weird way to say that, but also like if routes are going to change, you know, if we start seeing droughts affecting one area and, you know, different weather patterns in different areas, if that's going to lead to changes in migration routes over time, or even different times of the year that these migrations are going to happen? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the answer is nobody really knows. Um, (laughs) uh, there, the Audubon society sees this as a pretty dire, um, situation for a lot of species of birds. There's a lot of species of birds that are already at risk, whose future is really going to be complicated by climate change. But let's look at a couple different examples. In Northwest Europe, they found that bird migrations may be shortening in distance due to climate change. So one of the things you kind of talked about there is like, oh, are they going to have to travel to find their resources? Mm -hmm. Maybe they won't have to travel quite as far. If it's a little bit warmer over the course of the year, maybe instead of having to go down to Texas, they stop over in Oklahoma or, you know, so shorting those, um, that would is of course, extrapolating data off of one small study which seems like you can't really do because birds are different. Um, At the Field Museum, they found that over the last four decades, the body size of birds have decreased and their wingspan have increased. And this was especially apparent um, after periods of warming. So they took those like 70,000 birds that they had and they compared it over time and found that overall generally speaking across species of birds, their body sizes are going down. Now, what they anticipated is that, okay, if their body size is smaller and their wings are larger, this might be a way for birds to use less energy while migrating. 
Um, but they didn't see a consistent relationship across species about a change in their habits with that body size. So we're not really sure exactly what's going on there. What we do know is that they found that spring migration is five days earlier than it used to be. And fall migration is now longer. So it means that the earliest migrants are starting their migration earlier and the latest migrants are starting their migration later. Okay. Interesting. This is a little challenging because we're going to talk a little bit about some programs that are going to help birds. And this is going to make it a little harder because it's a longer period of time that, uh, that these birds are maybe most at risk while they're flying. Obviously climate change, severe weather, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so severe weather patterns has killed lots of birds already, but also increased wildfires. That's something that they came out with the last IPCC report is that we can pretty definitively tie wildfires to climate change. They just came out with this really recently in the, in the West tool geese, um, normally migrate between like Alaska and Canada, I think down to California. And they had four of them radio collared while they started flying. And then they hit the wildfires in California. And they found that overall, what would normally be a four-day migration took nine days and added 470 miles to their journey. So that is a lot. And (laughs) in addition to that, the birds didn't react the same way. They weren't like, all right, everybody band together. We're all going to Idaho. Like (laughs) one of them went to Idaho, but two of them like sat in the ocean for two days. They were like, we, uh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what to do. Um, some of them backtracked and some of them had to fly four times higher than their normal migration elevation to get over the plumes of smoke from the wildfires. So we know that that is drastically impacting behavior of four birds. So we can probably extrapolate that other birds are impacted. Yeah. I just have to say this is, this is tangential, but it's really interesting to me to read this data, just because, I mean, at the risk of anthropomorphization, which we've talked about on this podcast, but it is really interesting to think about that from the bird's eye view, as it were. What do you do? You're a bird, you're flying, you're doing this migration, and here's this unexpected event. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, that we face when we travel, right? We've got a plane that has to be rerouted due to weather or or whatever, and we all know what that's like. The birds basically have to do that too. And they have to figure out what's the (laughs) safest thing. What's the most effective, what makes the most sense for me to do? Should I go above it? Should I go around it? What do I, you know, that's, so that is, again, it just helps me to marvel at birds a little bit more. Yeah. And even to take your metaphor further, when we get rerouted, we're in communication with people on the ground on the Mm -hmm. other side, telling us don't go that way. Pilots are taking us. So none of us are making Mm -hmm. that decision. Those birds, like, I don't know. It kind of feels like the Oregon trail to me. Like there's a lot of options of dying of dysentery (laughs) for these migrating birds. Like this does not seem like a, like it's, it's just a perilous journey that it's amazing that these animals have done this for so long. And, uh, I think one of the things that's important to talk about is I know one of like, I know because also on these articles that the Audubon society put out that, uh, a lot of people were like climate change is normal. The earth has changed mm-hmm. many times. Um, and the point here is not even necessarily that climate change is man-made in this case, we're talking about anthropogenic, uh, climate change. It, it matters because we can help, but that's not why it's impacting birds. The reason it's impacting birds is because it's so much faster than the natural cycles are. Yeah. So normally animals, animals are going to be impacted when the climate changes and some of them are naturally going to die off. But when it changes this fast, that rate of extinction is also going to to end up being much higher as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And because we we will have to see how all of us and how wildlife is able to adapt. But yeah, that's that's a great clarifying point to make is, is that's why, yes, animals can adapt over time, but are they going to be able to adapt rapidly enough to deal with how quickly the climate is changing? And, and climate change is going to cause some habitats to disappear. So salt mar- marshes may be reduced because as sea levels rise, that's the habitat that's being eaten up by the sea. And they don't necessarily have the same 
sort of time as they naturally would to adjust that habitat further inland. Um, the higher altitudes of mountains are going to get warmer. So if you have a bird species that normally migrates from the top of the mountain down to the bottom of the mountain, and then they go back to the top of the mountain, the top of the mountain, there's no like higher you can go mm -hmm. after a certain point. And so those actually become islands. It's weird to think of mountaintops as islands, but that's what they become when certain populations get kind of stuck in those higher elevations because that's what their natural resources are taking them to. Um, and the Audubon Society also warns that those stop oversights that we're trying to identify might be different. You mentioned mm -hmm. they might reroute over the course of time. So they might not keep using the same spots. So that's going to make it more challenging to help save birds. So again, really hard to take the numbers with any sort of like certainty, but we do know is that birds are declining and they are declining at significant numbers because of the, the specific rates or the specific causes that we just outlined here. But also it's really hard to generalize species. Like so many of the things that I was looking at would, would even be like, well, all of the species, the data so far has covered this type of building, but we haven't looked at stadiums. So we did one about stadiums or we didn't account for the fact that cleanup crews are actually taking away some of those birds. So it's hard for us to compare city to city, what the most dangerous cities for birds are, because we're not taking into account <laughs> specific, like we just don't know. There's so, so much of a margin of error that it's so hard to scale these projects up to a size that you can say like, okay, well, I know this happens in Houston. And so I can say it's also happening in Austin. Like we can't even do that. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to do that. And it's really hard to then say if it's impacting sparrows, it's also impacting uh, cardinals or flycatchers or, or different species. So it's really difficult to be able to have all that data. And by the time we have a lot of the data we want, it's probably going to be changing. <laughs> so now I wanted to, to take some time to talk about how we can protect birds. Let's do it. So lights out programs. Tell me about them, Sarah. You know what a light out program is, right? Yeah. So you, you might hear, and I think we talked about this when we back, when we, we talked about light pollution as well, there's like the dark sky initiative and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. So there's different things that you can participate in. And it's basically just remembering to turn off your lights, turn off your lights in, whether it's your residential building or offices, uh, encouraging, especially at night, especially during migration season, so that you can try to help birds avoid that confusion from light pollution and discourage some of those collisions for happening as well. Yeah. There are programs across the country. Audubon society has lights out programs, but there's a lot of very similar initiatives out there. I really want to encourage you, especially if you are really into birds or if you work in a city, especially that has like a, a you work maybe in an office building or things like that. They have, um, some really great on the Audubon website, um, the best practices that you can do for existing office buildings as well as, so like we can say, oh, well, when we build new buildings, we can do these things, but there are things you can do with existing buildings, um, no matter what the size, uh, and they have some really great things for best practices. So talking about like, if, uh, nobody's in the office, turn the lights out, but also if you are working late at night in the office, maybe just turning on a light for your work specific area, instead of turning on the entire floor's lights, Things like if you've got random atrium lighting that you keep on overnight, turning that off. Um, there's a lot of different things that we can do in the buildings. And that's a really cool one that lots of places have voluntarily set up. It's a really good PR move. So if you're, if that's what your motivating factor is. Yeah. And it's easy to do. So yeah, you can generate some good PR and it's, it shouldn't be a challenging thing to do either. Right. Um, and that's especially, I wanted to especially point out things that were, um, impactful for migratory birds, especially, um, not just resident birds. Toronto has made some really great moves towards building bird friendly building standards. Um, and San Francisco has also taken that on as well. So new building projects have to incorporate certain bird safe building practices, and they'll actually change it in San Francisco based on like where the birds are nesting. So in certain mm -hmm. areas, you have to be a, like a certain level. It's like the blue area. I think it's required in the green area. It is recommended that you do these, um, building practices. One of them is 
fritting. So Sarah, you've seen bird safe glass. Can mm-hmm. you talk about like the different types of bird safe glass that you see out there? What does it actually look like? Well, actually, so the biggest thing that I see are the decals. So I actually, I mm-hmm. don't know what fritting is, but I'll see the decals and there are different kind of styles and shapes and there's recommendations about your spacing and where you're supposed to place it. So that's what I see most, but I'm, I'm not familiar with fritting. Fritting is, um, kind of a, what, gosh, I should have written a little bit more specific what it was, but basically it's when you change the glass where you kind of laser it so that it's not okay. as clear of a pain. So instead of it being a, a decal of lines, it's a way of, um, making that part of the structure of the glass think kind of like frosted glass. That's what I was going to say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's, it is frosted glass. I think it's slightly different than that. Um, one of the buildings at the Philadelphia zoo has a bird safe glass that their primate centers build out of bird safe glass. Um, but basically it makes it so it's not as reflective. So birds are not misinterpreting it as something lit up. One of the things I forgot to mention earlier in this podcast is they did find like they turned certain sections of building lights off and they wanted to see, like, I turned this pane off and then I kept the ones surrounding it on. They found that it reduced bird strike mortality, not just on the one that you turned it off, but the surrounding ones as well. So like even the little things can make a big difference, including this, uh, this fritting process, which actually also helps save on air conditioning costs because there's less heat transfer through fritted glass than there is through normal glass. So it's not just a kind of just for the bird situation. You've got more uh, benefits for other issues as well. So that's exciting. Um, in the U S U S representative, Mike Quigley from Illinois reintroduced the federal bird safe building act in 19 in uh, 2019, which would require public buildings that are through the general services administration to incorporate build bird safe building materials and design features. So, um, there are things that we could do on lots of different levels. So lights out, I would say is kind of a either individual or community level organizing the way that San Francisco is doing it is more of at a city level. And then the one that representative Mike Quigley is trying to do is more at a federal level. So we've talked about all the different levers that you should be pushing for, um, all these conservation things, whatever level you can access can help birds. So, um, all of these things are good. That hasn't really gained any huge traction in the house of representatives, but it's out there and there's a mm-hmm. lot of good legislation that's kind of out there. So maybe it means calling somebody in Congress and saying, Hey, I know this is a thing. Can you, I would love yeah. that if, if we could try and incorporate that into new building structures. The last thing I wanted to talk about is the, uh, you, you may be familiar with this listeners. We actually have federal laws protecting migratory birds. We have the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1916. <laughs> wow. We've been doing conservation for a long time. A long much, time. Much earlier than this, but <laughs> um, this was one of the one of those big first federal laws. So Sarah, are you familiar kind of what was going on in the 1800s with birds? Um, what led us to this point? I mean, not super familiar. I would imagine that it has to do with hunting. I mean, I think about like, you know, the times where hats, like bird feathers were used on hats and things like that. Um, So I don't know if that was partially contributing (laughs) to to that, but, um, but yeah, so uh, like with a lot of things, you know, we didn't realize the impacts that we were having maybe, you know, so things were going on unregulated. And then when it became a huge problem, we were like, Oh, Hey, maybe we need to do something about this. So enter, enter the laws. Uh, think of the passenger pigeon. I think we talk a lot about the passenger Mm -hmm. pigeon in the conservation field. If you're not familiar, that used to be one of those birds that blackened the sky with its migrations and you could throw rocks and birds would like fall out of the sky. That's how many there were, but we did that. We threw too many rocks. We shot too many pigeons. Mm -hmm. They're extinct now. Um, the great auk, the Carolina parakeet are all extinct. And that's the first time I think really in the U S we were like, Ooh, (laughs) wait a sec, we can kill entire species. Mm-hmm. And especially for people who like hunting, that's not good news. Like not it's, sustainable, right? It's really the commercialized hunting and the unregulated 
portion of it that were the issue. It's, it's not that all hunting had to cease. It was just like, whoa, we need some guardrails on what we're doing right now. Um, and this is when lots of conservation organizations formed, including the Audubon Society. Um, so the U.S. signed the Migratory Bird Treaty Act with Canada in 1916, and it protected any bird species that was basically found in both the U.S. and Canada. So we're going to see it. We're starting to leave the migratory word behind um, <laughs> in a conserv in like a biological sense. Um, and then we signed similar treaty versions of this treaty with Mexico in the 1930s and with Russia and Japan in the 1970s. And under this legislation, you cannot kill any of the birds on the list, take their eggs, sell their parts without a waiver. So think you get a hunting license for a certain amount of birds, um, but otherwise you can't kill birds in the U.S. Aren't you not even supposed to like take feathers or anything like that that you find? Aren't all of those things protected under this? I, I think so. I don't think, I mean- I'm going to confuse it with the Endangered Species Act, which mm. has like a different definition of take. Um, yeah. But we won't, go, but basically, we yeah. to get into the weeds of it, but. If you take a bird feather into your house, no one's going to come and get you. <laughs> but, but please don't try and like sell them probably is what my guess is. But um, yeah, but so, yeah, it's just interesting. It's a very sort of all-encompassing law. Yeah. Projection. And uh, Sarah, there are over 1,100 species of birds found in the u.s how many do you think are protected under this treaty i know that it's almost all of them it's over a thousand right i can't remember the exact number but i i looked it up prior to last week's episode you can actually get a list like yep. I, I think it is it the u.s fish and wildlife that, or, that has yep. like you can download an excel document which is pretty cool actually to see just the list but it's like a thousand and ninety two or something like that. It's a thousand and ninety six. Good no. job. <laughs> yeah. A thousand and ninety six species out of about eleven hundred. And and so really here we we leave that term mm -hmm. migratory a little bit in that like the biological sense is that migratory birds leave one space, go to the other in a population and in seasonal way under a regulatory sense it's basically any bird that is here and also one of the other countries that's kind of near us <laughs> at the same time <laughs> um and basically it's encompassed all of the uh the native birds here the only ones that it really doesn't count for is invasive species yeah that's mostly it which I think is fantastic. Let's yeah. protect all the birds. <laughs> um, yeah, I was thrilled when I was like going through this, like, wait a second, what? Um, and then really what the law was intended to do is protect the, like, it's one of those few laws that's like, this is also really specifically to protect over time these animals before they become endangered. Yeah. But uh, in the 1970s, prosecutors started filing laws uh, lawsuits against companies who violated the act, not through hunting, but through incidental death. So things like timber companies, oil companies um, started getting fined. And basically they weren't like, oh, anybody who hurts a bird, whether they mean to or not, is on the end of the trouble. Basically, they were like, we contacted these companies and were like, hey, man, you're killing way too many birds. Please adhere to some best practices here or we'll file a lawsuit against you. And they were either ignored or rejected basically. And so then they started filing the lawsuits and we started to see that extend in the 2000s and 2010s um, with several energy companies, including wind turbine companies getting lawsuits filed against them and having to pay like 2.3.5 million dollar fines, like a wow. lot of money. Yeah. yeah. And then in 2015, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife considered changing the implementation of the rule to regulate energy companies for things like oil spills. Like think of, I remember a lot of oil spills when I was a kid and like the dove commercials of cleaning mm -hmm. off little, yeah. little baby ducks and pelicans and stuff. And gas flares are another thing, power lines, wind turbines. Um, so they were basically like, we'll come up with a best set of practices for all of these energy companies. And if they decide they're not going to follow it, then we'll go after them. Um, unfortunately in 2017, uh, the Trump administration told fish and wildlife, 
that they could only enforce the act if companies killed the birds on purpose rather than incidentally. That is a really strict reading of the law, stricter than it has been implemented since the 1970s. And it's a really hard to prove burden on, yeah. on basically fish and wildlife. Like you'd have to find documentation saying, yeah, we, we hate we birds. The birds. Yes. Thank you for killing the birds upon my orders. Thank you. CEO. Like what? So, um, so that was a really strict reading. Luckily in 2021, president Biden restored the act to allow fish and wildlife to pursue action against companies who don't use the best practices in reducing bird death. So basically they're not saying like anybody again, who, look, I hit a bird with my car right. is going to jail or really nobody goes to jail. They just get fined money, <laughs> but it really is like on those mass scales when people are worried about wind turbines, for example, whether out of good faith argument that golden eagles and bats are killed by them or by a way of arguing that we should stick with fossil fuels, all of these energy standards uh, and energy supplies, coal, natural gas, uh, wind turbines, solar panels all have impacts on birds. Yeah. And so this is a good way for us to just say, Hey, across the board, everybody's got responsibility here. Um, because really they're killing a lot more birds than my house is, even though I can help out birds at my house. So this is a really great thing for us to have by way of legislation here in the U S. So that's what I got for you, Sarah. Love it. Yeah. I just continue to Marvel at birds. I've really enjoyed these past couple of weeks. It has made me think about birds differently, really sort of think about this journey that they have to take. And I think we got, like you said, a lot of different sort of levels of ways that we can have an impact uh, for the better for these birds too. So and I, and I do want to point out, like, I apologize. I've been very U.S. centric in this. Um, in in other parts of the world, poaching is a really huge issue for migratory birds. Um, there's other issues. I had trouble narrowing down <laughs> studies just here, so I'm sure this just leaves the, the window open for us to do more episodes. So if you have like a specific species of bird or a specific issue facing birds in your country, please shoot us a message. We'd love to, yeah. to talk to you about it or do an episode on it. For sure. Yeah. I mean, we are both based in the United States. I think yes. it's going to be easiest for us to discuss those things that we're the most familiar with for sure. But as this podcast continues to go on, I, I'm excited to dive into conservation around the world and species around the world and all of that stuff too. But yeah, definitely if you're listening and, you know, have stories of interest or information of interest or things that you would like us to look into that are applicable to your area, I think that would be awesome. And I would love to do that. So definitely don't hesitate to reach out. Well, thanks for listening. You guys stick around because we've got your challenges for the week. Welcome back to our challenge of the week. Every week we give you a new challenge to help make an impact on yourself on nature on conservation we've got some options this week because birds are everywhere and lots of things hurt birds so let's do some things to help them so the the first thing i want to recommend is to look up when birds are coming through your area for both spring and fall migration it's a really easy google search i was just like hey google when uh, do birds migrate through southeastern pennsylvania on their fall migration I also want to recommend um, FLAP. FLAP is a organization out of Canada. I'm trying to pull it up now because they have like the coolest website. But I'm basically, um, there's is flap.org. <laughs> it's like fatal uh, light pollution or something like that is what <laughs> it stands for. Yeah, I, I just, sorry, FLAP. But <laughs> listen, FLAP has the coolest map out there 
that like shows me my current wind and weather conditions and like how wind is flowing across my area. And they talk about ways that you can try and predict when the best bird migration is coming through your area. So come this springtime, I'm going to be on this website looking at the wind coming through my area because they've got the best ways to sort of predict what would be good nights to try and look for bird migrations. Cool. That is my first, if you're just looking for something that's like, I want to learn a little bit more, take a look, figure out when your migration windows are and check out that cool map. Cause I was like nerding out over it. Fatal light awareness program. Okay. No pollution, (laughs) but that's good. I got close. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Yeah. I love it. I will also just say, we've talked about it a million times, but the Merlin bird ID app also does have, like, if you're looking at a specific, like if you've seen a bird or heard a bird on your, in your nature time or whatever, you can look that up on the app and it'll show you the map that shows, shows you if the bird is there all year round or if it's their migratory breeding, non-breeding season, whatever. And they even have, um, like I was doing this, like when I heard the cat bird, I looked it up because cat birds are actually not here in central Florida year round. So, uh, they're not here over the summertime. So they're here in their non-breeding time. And so that was kind of cool. I didn't know that. Uh, but, but it'll actually show you there's a little like bar, graph type thing that has each month of the year and it'll show you how likely it is that you're seeing that particular bird in that time of year. Super cool. Our friend Alex got super into birding during the pandemic and she was recording things in her yard. Like she saw a hummingbird that the Merlin bird app had to be like, no, nah, that's, that's mm-hmm. not there. And she was like, yeah. no, it yeah. <laughs> that definitely does happen too. It's, um, but, Which but is just super to say, cool. Then you yeah. can get real excited when you're like, huh, this is a rare, unusual find for this time of year, too. Yeah. And there are really cool programs where they count backyard birds. So you can also be part of science for that, too. We'll talk about that another time. But anyway, mm-hmm. ch- take a look when those migratory birds are coming through um, your area. And the number two step for that would be make a plan, especially for that time of year, to turn off any outside lights. So, um, try and do this at home, but also look for options in your workplace as well. So to give you an example, Halloween, some of you will have your inflatable light up strobe lighty Halloween decorations (laughs) out from like September 1st to Christmas. Right. And for some of you, that's going to be when the birds are migrating through. So putting those on a timer, for example, will greatly reduce some of those birds being uh, directed to your area and potentially colliding into your house, turning them off at certain intervals, having that happen, um, or just reducing the time that you have them outside, not looking to take away your Halloween joy, but that would be one example just from like my life at my workplace. That is something that we, we always turn it off by a certain time of night. It's going to save you energy bill, but it's also going to help those birds as well. Mm-hmm. And then the kind of, I would say beast mode challenge, but I don't, you know, I didn't get really into the beast mode part of that because I don't know that it's going to come up for you in the next week, but if there's new development happening in your town, you could be a bird advocate and ask the questions when it comes to the city planning meetings. So if they're putting up a new structure, asking how this new building is working to keep birds safe, um, that could be bird safe glass. That- That could be um, turning off lights during certain times of year. That could be making sure they're incorporating native plants into their landscaping plan so those birds have food for a stopover site. Um, How can we keep bird safety in mind for that project? That might not come up in the next week, probably not, but keep an eye out for it. And if you're feeling compelled, that's one of the angles that maybe you can feel a little bit more comfortable coming at, um, having listened to this podcast and doing a little more research in your area, how your town can keep birds in mind moving forward, because most of those collisions happen outside of those skyscrapers. Yeah. And that's a good one again. Yeah. It might not come up for you, but I think things like this are what I need to start challenging myself to do a little more. This is a little more of a step maybe outside of people's comfort zones, but I like the way you phrase it as just ask the questions. You don't need to come in, you know, picketing and yelling and screaming, but just saying, hey, here's an, here's an issue as we're, you know, as this project is moving along 
can you tell me, have you thought about this? Can you tell me anything about this? So I like kind of the way that you say that. And it is a good one to just maybe sort of help us remember to be a little more aware that these things that might be going on in our communities can have an impact. Yeah. And, and a positive angle to that too, is you probably have a birding community around you. Um, birds are one of the most advocated for group of species in the world. People have loved birds for a long time and they have organizations around bird watching bird advocacy. So it's possible you can link up with people in your uh, area that are like-minded in that way and have a good social interaction. And uh, like, I think I've had birds on the mind a lot lately because I'm someone who struggles a lot in the winter time, um, with making sure that my mood is a little bit more stable and, and not getting the winter blues. And birds are one of those few animals that stay constant as far as being able to be around them, being able to have them be close, feeding them, um, can be positive for them in the, the winter time, help them stave off, um, some of that fat loss and being able to uh, make sure that they survive that harsh winter time. So it just makes me feel a little more connected to nature, even when there's snow everywhere. Well, thanks Casey. I love our bird episodes. I've never really thought of myself as being a bird person in particular. And, you know, I still feel like even though I've been sort of trying to do it for years now, I'm still a terrible bird watcher, but, uh, but I, but I love to try and I do love to marvel at them. So this was a really interesting couple of weeks. Hope you all listening enjoyed it as well. And again, if you do have any suggestions, any stories you want to share from your own experience or your own part of the world, there are lots of ways that you can contact us. We have had a few requests come in for future episodes that we're going to be trying to get to work on here uh, over the next few weeks. But uh, any of that, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, we're A Little Greener Podcast. On Instagram, we are at A Little Greener Pod. And you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for hanging out with us, guys. We'll talk to you next week. You did it. I got it right. (laughs) 